1: Good evening, everyone, and welcome to another edition of Ghost Chronicles International, the first of two hours of Ghost Chronicles Radio. I am Ron Kolick, your host, New England's own Van Helsink, and with me, my co-host, all the way from the windswept land of the Red Dragon, is the gold standard, and ghost hunting, the godfather of ghost hunting, whatever else he wants to call him, the ghost hunter, Mr. Steve Parsons. You called me what you like. I you got too to many damn that. titles. What the hell is that? Can't you pick one?
2: Uh, well, I was—I uh, don't pick any of them, did I? You said, yeah, I want to
1: be at the gold uh, standard. Uh, so sorry, legal.
2: sorry. It was the Wall Street Journal called me that. And then right. somebody else called me the godfather of ghost hunting. So.
1: So, what is it? Every two minutes, you just change your name? No. At least I'm consistent. I'm Ben Helsing, New England's own Ben Helsing. Yeah. I have been for twenty years.
2: Well, oh, good for you.
1: I'm I don't a- remake myself every five minutes. You know what I mean? I don't need to. I'm, always- <laughs> I'm just a
2: ghost hunter, and there I'm go. a good one.
1: Yeah, damn good one. <laughs> I'm a damn good one, Martha. Even if, even if you have to say so yourself.
2: I don't. I, <laughs> have entitled, I have never entitled myself, as you well know.
1: Wait a minute. Wait a minute. Is the name of we- your web
2: website the Ghost Hunter? I remember when we first uh, the <laughs> website <laughs> you made. <laughs> the website you insisted. See, that I, I know do.
1: you're going to try to throw it all on me. That
2: it's always my the fault. website, no matter what. <laughs> insisted that I do because you said I needed a website, and I mm-hmm. said. But we British don't promote ourselves like that. You did we, say that. Uh, yep, there we
1: go. Yep, you did say that, but you <laughs> chose to ignore it. Anyway, so we're doing something uh, kind of interesting tonight. I'm kind of excited about it. Um,
2: all right. Well, I mean, you know, uh, it's like people are sick to death of hearing us squabbling all the time. Yeah, I know.
1: We actually get people like, that.
2: "I don't know, nobody listens to that show. All they do is argue." Yeah, and uh, I, you know, and the alternative is mad psychic guests and ghost yeah. rescuers. We already uh, done that. Uh, yeah, <laughs> that was a uh, yeah. What an interesting day that was. Yes. Yes. Yeah. So I thought interesting, you know, we'll very interesting. We'll... <laughs> Moderately. Um... <laughs> just wished it would end. Um, <laughs> so I thought, Do you know what? I'm going to dig through... Because um, on my on my shelf, I have a, a load of old bits and sort of old ghost stuff. And I thought, a few weeks ago, obviously, because we were in lockdown here, um, I'd delved around and found this old, you probably hear it, this old cassette flopping about um, with a paper label on it that says... Um, the haunting of B- bircham newton aerodrome a full account of the famous haunting where psychic sounds of a wartime aerodrome were recorded together with strange noises and a voice in a deserted building this Ooh, cassette sounds like, show, contains an in... huh? sounds like the show doesn't it yeah just... this cassette <laughs> contains an interview with one of the people who obtain the recordings It eavesdrops on a seance where the name of the dead ermine is produced during an investigation by a BBC team, a medium was suddenly entranced by the spirit of another dead. Burned to death in an aircraft crash on the airfield. And I thought, do you know what? I'm going to play that on the West files. And I did. And it was a huge success. It scared the bejesus out of people. Um, yeah, so I thought oh, I wonder if there's an alternative to me and Ron scaring the bejesus out of people, arguing we would play it, it's actually one of a group of tapes I've got from Bertram um, Newton I, I, the actual airfield dates back to 1916, it was a First World War airfield and then um, it closed eventually in the mid-1960s and it became a training centre for the construction uh, building construction industry and it still is to this present day um, and the trainees that were there who were using some of the old wartime buildings to uh, for different you know, around uh, whatever they were doing there at the construction industry training centre um, reported weird stuff and uh, a group of investigators I think from the Anglia Paranormal Society um, went along there and they they had some stuff happen, and then back, back then in the 19, I think it was the 19, late 1960s, um, a BBC reporter and crew went along as well. Uh, there was actually a group of recordings because uh, the, the first one, the one we're going to use tonight is the famous one. It's been on YouTube, um, you know, because it is such a famous haunting, but this is the original BBC recording. Mm-hmm. Um, in fact, cassette dates from Mid 1970s. Um, I've had to be. I had to digitise it for tonight. So this is. This isn't the same as the one that's uh, exactly the same as the one that's on YouTube. But there, there's another recording which I've got, uh, which was made by uh, uh, other investigators who decided to do a follow-up investigation to this original BBC one, and they also packed a tape recorder, um, and their tape recorder and their cassette is on the shelf out of reach uh, picked up metallic clangs and noises as uh, it sounds like heavy objects are being moved around um, kind of gives the impression and I say the impression of what it would might sound like in a in, you know in a, war, a working aircraft hangar during wartime um all of these, they actually none of these were recorded in a hangar. These were recorded in squash courts. Now, there are different versions of the squash court story as to where uh, or what existed and why indeed it was even a haunted squash court, you know, when you've got the whole of the airfield to choose from. Mm-hmm. Uh, some people have suggested, some his, airfield historians have suggested the, the squash court was actually built on top of uh, an earlier, what was called a line hut. In the imperial the... ground? No, 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 a line hut, <laughs> which would have, which would have been the sort of uh, where the the ground crew would have hung out and waited for the planes to come and go. Um, it was also apparently during World War Two. Um, it was used as a temporary mortuary for morgue for uh, when there was accidents. But one of the interesting stories about the squash court, apart from the ones that I don't, I'm trying not to spoil the, the story for tonight. Right, I don't want you to either.
3: Yeah.
2: I'm going to let that one speak for itself, so I'm dealing with some of the surrounding stuff. Um, but uh, it was uh, right next door to the officer's mess, and this is an account I collected some years ago um, from an ex-RAF chappie, who, uh, who was stationed at Birch and Newton before it shut down. And he was walking the corridors uh, late one night when his eyes beheld... It's a, no, it's a song, isn't it? But he was walking through the corridors late at night um, and he saw something coming towards him, which he described to me in, in his description as looking like an, uh, an airman, wearing... Uh, now, this might not mean anything to... Uh, he was was wearing what what the the gentleman described as a Sidcot flying suit. Now, I know what a Sidcot flying suit is. It's kind of these bulky, all-in-one-piece fabric um, suits that they wore in the interwar years. Uh, They were were heavily lined because in the open cockpits things got a bit cold. So he's wearing one of these Sidcot flying suits, carrying a leather helmet and goggles, and with a chest-type parachute. And I thought, he said to me, he thought it very odd, um, particularly as the figure then turned to its left and disappeared through a wall. Oh. But, uh, yeah, one of the most interesting stories that relates to this, that isn't um, the one that they're talking about, um, comes from uh, a WAF, a Women's Auxiliary Air Force nursing orderly who was stationed at RAF Birch of Newton in 1949. And this is again an account that I'd managed to collect. Um, it was over the August bank holiday uh, period. So right now in 1949, Mary Tock, which was her name, was on duty in the station sick quarters. She and, uh, Women's Auxiliary Air Force ambulance drivers were sleeping in the sick quarters, which was next to the decontamination centre. To so pass the time, the two ladies played table tennis and uh, they were playing it on the Sunday evening when they experienced an eerie encounter. It was about 9pm and they'd been playing table tennis for about 10 minutes when suddenly they heard the clunk of a door closing and heavy footsteps. So they ran, they were a bit scared, so they ran into the staff duty room. They telephoned the station guard room and the the station police came out and searched the whole of the decontamination building and the sick quarters, but they found nobody else there. All of the doors were securely locked. But it transpired that some weeks earlier, a fighter aircraft had crashed just a few miles away from RAF U. and the pilot's remains had been brought back to the RAF station. Uh, His flying boots and other items of clothing had been put into one of the decontamination centre storerooms. Now, for Mary, there was a twist, and uh, also uh, from the medical officer's point of view, because he had visited the scene of of the crash. And he called Mary to his office the next day, and he wanted to know if she had any relative in the Royal Air Force. She was quite puzzled by the question because she didn't have any relatives, and she told him so. And it became qu- became quite obvious to Mary uh, that something was, or, or, or the reason was, when the pilot held out the, uh, the uh, when the medical officer held out the pilot's blood-stained paybook, kind of his identity card, um, and his name turned out to be Peter Tuck, and Ooh. her name, Tock. But the bloodstain had covered part of the second name, making it look like Tock, and it thought it might actually be her relation. The footsteps that she'd heard were those of, May. Well, she said later she believed that the footsteps she'd heard were the pilot coming back for his flying suit, flying boots, and his other belongings. They didn't see a ghost, but they heard the door slam shut, and they clearly heard the heavy footsteps. which she believed that um, they were the pilot wearing his heavy flying boots. Uh, there's one other uh, that I managed to grab it together. Um, again, relating to footsteps, this time in the viewing gallery for the squash courts. So we're right in the building, same building for uh, tonight's recording, um, where many people have claimed to have seen a ghostly ermine in the viewing gallery. And um, of course, that's the the theme of the recordings that um, we're going to play later, mm. shortly. That sounds uh,
1: really intriguing. I'm, I'm dying to hear for it. But uh, before we do, and we're both ready to play it, is that uh, I don't know if you heard it over there, but we have reports from L.A. Airport of uh, two oh, pilots. Two pilots uh, seeing a yeah. man in a rocket suit.
2: Yeah, I, 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 I read it today. see zooming up and down LAX is uh, 3,000 feet, wasn't it? Up down. Yeah,
1: the only thing, it's impossible. The only two companies that manufacture the, the, any of those suits are both saying that it's absolutely impossible to reach that height. Neither one of them has the fuels to do it in their thing.
3: Well,
2: do you know something? I've seen a video quite recently, um, and it was filmed over Dubai of an Emirates Airlines aircraft. And -hmm. it was a promotional video filmed by Emirates Airlines. Uh, And it shows one of their big Airbus aircraft with two of these rocket men in in their flight jet suits flying at the wingtips of this big Airbus. And the altitude is given 8,000 feet.
1: Yeah, well, that's been dubbed, I hate to tell you.
2: (laughs) Yeah, well, it was a, done by by it was actually done by Red Bull. Well, it's, so,
1: it's, uh, it's well, yeah, which makes sense that it, that it has been dubbed because it's physically impossible; none of the suits can reach that height.
2: Okay, take you away
1: from. No, that's what the two two uh, thing. That's the don't tell them yeah, don't Airlines that
2: they will be
1: cross. Plus they dropped
2: them from the interesting stuff. So, I mean, it's not the sort of thing you expect to see when you're on approach into LAX, is it? No, no. Anyways, we do have this thing,
1: we are running out of time. Okay. So, without further ado, let's play this BBC broadcast of
0: whatever. It's difficult for many people to believe in ghosts, and this is understandable. For we tend to accept only what we can see and hear with our normal senses. In our day-to-day lives, we're unlikely to come up against paranormal happenings, and yet, from time to time, strange events take place which seem to verge on fantasy. Often, these events happen when we least expect them, and it's not necessary for the traditional bewitching hour of midnight to animate the ghosts, and it's not necessary for the locations to be the hallowed ground of some ancient churchyard or burial place. Ghosts can show up at any time of day or night, often in the most unlikely places, and they can take many forms. Some people just don't believe in them, and this is probably because they've never seen one. They will argue that should a friend see something paranormal, that it was a figment of imagination, existing only in the mind of the beholder, and they'll come up with theories to explain away the phenomena. Perhaps the person seeing a ghost was daydreaming, or perhaps he created the image by self-hypnosis combined with an over-enthusiastic imagination. But we're going to prove to you that ghosts really do exist, for you're going to hear them on this tape. And what you hear are not figments of imagination or the results of self-hypnosis, for they were recorded via the medium of a microphone and a tape recorder. The microphone cannot operate in silence, It has a diaphragm, which moves in time with the movement of the air when a sound is generated. It's rather like a loudspeaker in reverse. It cannot record figments of imagination, and it is not subject to hypnosis or telepathy. It relies upon physical sound to function. It is possible, under certain circumstances, for a tape recorder to act as a radio receiver. And under the right conditions, they can record programs originating from broadcast stations. But the sounds you're about to hear do not in any way resemble radio program material. And at the time these recordings were made, there were no stations transmitting material of this nature. It must also be admitted that recordings of this type could be faked. But we promise you that what you hear are genuine recordings presented exactly as they happened. And we assure you that they are in no way faked. The story which follows has been investigated by BBC radio and television, and has been broadcast around the world. It has caused quite a stir wherever it has been heard, and it raises the question, are there such things as earthbound spirits? And do the dead really live on in another state of existence, sometimes trying desperately to draw attention to themselves? Now here is the recording of events exactly as they happened. Situated about 16 miles from Kings Lynn in Norfolk, near the East Anglian coast, lies Bircham Newton, the site of a Royal Air Force aerodrome which has survived two world wars. It was originally built in 1914, but today it's owned by the Construction Industry Training Board, serving as a base for the many courses they run to train building operatives. It was here, under the most unlikely conditions, that the first psychic event took place. A film crew were at work in what had once been the old officer's mess. They were producing a management training film, a very down-to-earth subject, when quite suddenly one of the heavy studio lamps started to topple over, without anybody touching it. Peter Clark, a member of the film crew, was standing beneath it, and by all rights it should have brained him. But just as it was about to hit him, it swerved to the right, as if pulled by some unseen hand, and then crashed across a table, quite undamaged. There was no apparent reason for this happening, and as it took place during the filming of a scene, everyone in the room was standing motionless at the time. When the lamp had been placed upright again, it was found that there was still a coil of loose cable beneath the base, so no one had tripped or pulled on this wire. On its own, this accident would have brought forth little comment, but when connected with the events which follow, it takes on a more interesting aspect. Just behind the officer's mess is a squash court, which was built during the First World War, and it was here that another member of the film unit had a terrifying experience. After discovering the existence of the court, he thought he'd like to play a game of squash, and arranged to borrow a bat and a ball from the sports officer, and was loaned the only key to the building. He asked if any of the members of the film unit would like to join him, but as no one was interested, he set off to play on his own. There are two courts placed side by side, and at first he amused himself in the left-hand one. Then, for no particular reason, he decided to have a go in the right-hand court, and was soon devoting all his attention to trying to hit the ball. While this was going on, he heard footsteps walk along the viewing gallery behind him, and at first he didn't pay much attention to them, as he imagined that one of the members of the film crew had come to watch him play. And then, suddenly, he realised that he'd locked himself into the building and was completely alone. For a moment, he stood silent. And then he heard a sigh, which made the hairs on his neck prickle. And turning round, he saw a man in aria uniform staring at him from the gallery. And then the figure vanished. The experience terrified him, and he immediately fled from the building. Later that night he confided his experience to Peter Clark, who suggested that they should return to the squash court with the film unit's professional tape recorder to try and capture the footsteps on tape. They didn't get the footsteps, but what they did obtain was one of the most amazing psychic recordings ever made. We asked Peter Clark why they decided to visit the building at night.
4: The main reason, really, was because it was quiet as we were taking the tape recorder with us. What time of night was this? About 11.30. 1130. What sort of weather conditions were there? Calm, still warm summer night. What was the atmosphere like when you visited this building? There are two courts, side by side. We first went in the one on the left, which I can only really describe as normal. Then we investigated the rest of the building and searched everywhere, to see if there was anybody in there and then we went in to this one on the right and the atmosphere was so frightening, so cold in there that it was just like stepping into another world almost. Was this the court your colleague
0: saw the ghost of the airman in?
4: Yes, that's right, uh, this was the one that we'd come to investigate and we put the tape recorder on the floor and set the tape on it and we debated whether to stay in the building or not we were so frightened that we we thought we'd just leave it running and lock it in there and come back when the tape had run out and so you left the machine running for about what half an hour or so Yes, I think it was about 20, 25 minutes. Could you see the door, the entrance to the door? Oh, yes, yes, we saw that. We, could, we got the building in plain sight all the time. It was uh, moonlit night. And then you returned to collect the machine? Yes, and we, we uh, opened the door and walked in just as the, the tape ran out. And as we were bending over the machine to switch it off, we heard these footsteps along the viewing gallery Immediately we thought, Oh, somebody must have been in here, and then we realized that we'd checked the place. And as we stood there looking, the the footsteps progressed further along the gallery and we could see there was nobody there. And of course by this time we were so keyed up and frightened that we just literally we grabbed the recorder and ran.
0: Now you're going to hear extracts from that recording. The volume control had been set for whispered speech, and so the sounds were recorded at a very low level. We've amplified them. And because of this, they're accompanied by considerable tape mush. In the first extract, you'll hear some metallic sounds. And if you listen carefully, you can hear the drone of a piston engine aircraft flying over. And yet, not only were there no aircraft flying in the area that night, there were no metallic objects within the building capable of producing these sounds. Time to time, the recorder picked up the sounds of muffled speech, and here a woman's voice can be heard, just after a metallic ping, which sounds not unlike a spoon being tapped. so remarkable we've repeated it three times. (laughs) There were noises as though heavy objects were being moved around, and coupled with odd bits of conversation, they give the impression that one is listening to the everyday sounds in a hangar in wartime. of all. We've absolutely no explanation as to what made it, or what it represents. The master tape of these recordings was passed to the BBC, and they analysed it thoroughly. This is what one of their engineers had to say about it.
3: Well, I've listened to it myself and talked to a number of my BBC colleagues with wide experience of recording, and collectively, we well, they very puzzled, and we can't offer any simple, clear explanation. Could there be some sort of technical explanation, some reason how these sounds might have got onto the tape? There are certain possibilities. The tape itself could have had a previous recording on it, but I understand that this, in fact, was uh, a new piece of tape, so this is unlikely. Um... It is possible that these noises could have been recorded from outside. Um, I think that this is not possible because I understand uh, the building has a nine-inch brick wall, and although certain sounds could come in, these are too clear and metallic, I think, to have been recorded from outside. I think we can rule out any internal noises generated in the recorder itself. There's no fault condition known to me in the recorder that would generate um, uh, this kind of thing. I think we can say that these noises have been definitely recorded through the recorder microphone onto the machine. We confirmed
0: with Peter Clark that a brand new roll of tape had been used, so there was no possibility of a previous recording breaking through. We asked him if they did any further investigation on the site.
4: Yes, well, we we held a séance there with a a medium, and uh, he went into trance and produced this this dead airman, the voice of a dead airman. It was it was extraordinary really because his his face was all sort of twisted up and he seemed to have difficulty in breathing. Give us your name.
5: name.
4: Leave us your name. Give us your name. Can
0: you give us your name? Wiley Wiley Now this was quite remarkable. For after a couple of months we contacted a local newspaper and upon checking the files it turned out there was an airman called Wiley who had committed suicide on the aerodrome during the last war. Our investigation also showed that the aerodrome had been haunted for many years And this was not just an isolated incident. In recent years, a man attending one of the construction industry courses had his bedclothes pulled off him at night by some invisible being. Another had his curtains torn down and thrown across the room. And a senior engineer told us that he'd been tapped on the shoulder three times while working in the attic of the officer's mess. And yet, there was nobody else up there at the time. The experience so unnerved him, he refused to work there again and yet another man claimed he saw a figure in RAF uniform walk through a solid wall which had been erected since the end of the last war. He was so frightened he refused to complete his course and left the following day. The record shows that one of the windows located near the officer's mess is continually being broken, yet there seems to be no logical reason why this happens. As the experts say, if the construction industry glazers cannot replace the windows properly, then nobody can, but that window seems reluctant to remain intact. During our investigation, we questioned many members of the staff, and the more we probed, the more stories we unearthed. It seemed common knowledge that strange events were continually taking place at Bertram Newton. There was the case of the radiators in the officer's mess being turned off in the middle of the night. The stopcock was located in a bedroom in a recess in the wall, and in order to get to it, a cover held in place by six brass screws had to be removed. The cover plate was hidden behind a wardrobe. It seems unlikely that anybody would take the trouble to move the wardrobe, find a screwdriver, and remove the six screws in order to turn the water off. And yet, this happened four nights running during cold winter weather. The psychic sounds you've heard were broadcast on the Jack D'Amano programme by the BBC, and as a result, a large number of listeners wrote in. Among the letters received were several from people who'd been stationed at the aerodrome during the last war, and it seemed that even then strange things took place. One man stated that it was common knowledge that the ghost of an airman was frequently seen about the place. It also seems to have been an unlucky aerodrome to be stationed at, In the early part of the war, the American Air Force moved in, and they mounted their first daylight raid over France from Bertram Newton. They dispatched 13 aircraft, but not one of them ever returned. Among the letters the BBC received were a number from pet owners who said that their animals had reacted very strangely to the psychic sounds from the squash court. Some said their dogs and cats showed signs of fear, It seems almost unbelievable that a cat or a dog could sense something abnormal in a radio broadcast. They couldn't have understood the dialogue as human beings would. So what upset them? We know that dogs can hear higher frequency sounds than human beings, but it's highly unlikely that these high frequencies could be reproduced on the average domestic radio set. This raised the question that if the tape was broadcast for a second time, would the animals react again? It was decided to try an experiment and one of the local British radio stations agreed to cooperate and broadcast the sounds. The animals obliged for the second time and many listeners wrote to the station to confirm this. One little girl explained that she had two dogs and they both reacted. Gillian, so your dogs, so tell me what happened when your dogs heard the noise. You've got two,
4: haven't you, an Alsatian and a mongrel. What did the mongrel do when it heard these ghost noises? Went under the cupboard. So it heard the noises and shut away and hid itself in fright? Yeah. And what happened to the Alsatian? A Alsatian, she looked up to the radio and her fur
5: went straight
0: up. So it had some effect on her as well? Yes.
5: Yeah.
0: The Bertram Newton story created great interest in many quarters. And shortly after it was broadcast, BBC Television took an interest in it. They decided to do their own investigation, and we were invited to join them at the aerodrome. They arrived accompanied by two prominent members of a leading British spiritualist society. When we first visited the squash courts, they entered the left one, and, after a brief look round, declared that there was nothing abnormal about the place. But as soon as they entered the right-hand court, they became excited, and claimed that it held a presence. Although they didn't know that this was the one where the tape had been recorded and the ghost had materialised, it certainly did have an atmosphere. And compared with the left court, it was frightfully cold. And when we left the building a few minutes later, they commented on this. But they also claimed they'd both sensed the spirit of a dead airman in the building.
4: Right, back of his car, it's I'm warmer I'm out here than I am in
5: there. It's it's no, know that. You've seen them. You've been in the cold, Yeah, that's my cold. Did you sense anything? So so? Did you, you sense anything? So? Yeah, I just sent it. I haven't seen it, John. I've just seen it, John. I, I, as I know how one of them went, who is in there now. But they come over very strong in there. But, see, I was walking towards the door to come out. Suddenly I was spewed around and I faced the wall again. And I thought, why? And I looked at the wall and I expected something like to but nothing did. I got this terrible icy feeling in my feet there by god it's colder than and that. when you, yeah, when yeah, you get yeah. it, you know not imagination
0: because of, uh... one of the spiritualists was a very well-known and trusted medium the late john sutton he told us there was a lot of psychic power being generated in the building and he decided to go back inside again to meditate but as soon as we entered the squash court he was entranced apparently by this dead airman <sighs>
5: an accident. We're in an accident. <laughs>
0: oh, <my God. laughs> oh, God. Save. save you,
5: yes. Save. Yes, we will we're here to save you. Tell us. You
0: can hear me.
5: I can hear you, yes. Oh, Tell us what happened. Oh, mm-hmm. Tell us what happened. Fire? Plane caught fire and it crashed. Yes. Where where did it crash? Do you remember? Dear, dear, dear. Here? near, near here. The church near the church. Yes, yes, yes. Yes. Oh, All right. right, we've got that. Dusty Miller. Hey, we... Dusty Miller. Dusty Miller. Uh, Dusty Miller. Pat Sullivan. Yes. Jerry Arnold. Jerry Arnold. Jerry Arnold. Jerry Arnold. Help us. What can we do? Help us. Help us, what can we do? Well, you know, you know. Can you hear me? You know you've left the earth behind. In the plane you died. Do you remember that? Yes. But look up. Don't be afraid. Let go of the earth. Let go of the earth. You understand? You don't belong here. Yes. Look up. Ask for help. Upwards. And go towards the light. But you're holding yourself down. Tell that to Jerry, to Dusty, and to Pat Sullivan.
0: John Sutton explained that while he was entranced, he learned that the three airmen had all been keen squash players, and the courts had become a sort of mecca for them. He told us that they'd made a pact that if anything should ever happen to them, they'd try to meet up again in this building. He also told us that they'd been burnt to death in a crash when the aircraft, an Avro Anson, had crashed behind a church which had a tower but no steeple. He thought the church must be somewhere in the vicinity, but as he'd never visited the area before, he couldn't confirm the actual location. He explained to us that very often people do not realise what has happened when they die, because they feel quite normal, but they find that they cannot communicate with the living. Their sense of time is quite different, and they don't measure it as we do. He said that these three airmen had been held earthbound at Bertram Newton, because they had no idea they'd been killed in that crash. He was quite convinced that the psychic happenings around the aerodrome were the result of their attempts to try and draw attention to themselves, for they desperately needed help. Towards the end of the seance, John Sutton's features seemed to change, and he took on the appearance of an old man. This, we were told later, was his spirit guide manifesting. God
5: bless you. And you, my children, I give thanks for the help which you have given my medium and those on this side of life. Are they all right now? They are at this time. Good. Now being helped.
0: Good. And it has been almost 30 years that this health has been sought for. And at last, they can now be happy. You will hear of
5: no more disturbances, and should you hear of any such stories, then you will know indeed that this is but the person's own mind. I give thanks to you all for the
0: help that you have given. We're pleased to do it. God bless you. God bless you. As to whether or not the medium was controlled by a spirit guide, we should probably never know. However, we were quite certain that John Sutton had never visited Bertram Newton before, and we were astonished to find out during a later investigation that an RAF Anson did crash in flames behind Bertram Church, killing the crew of three. And what is more remarkable is that Bertram Church has a tower but no steeple, although the majority of the churches in the area all have steeples. We would very much like to check the names given in this seance. But unfortunately, government regulations will not allow us access to the aerodrome logbooks and records. For the time being, these three names must unfortunately remain in limbo. The spiritualists were quite certain that from this moment onwards, the psychic happenings would cease. But did they? Unknown to us, the Jack Demanio radio programme decided to send a reporter down to Bertram Newton to make a further investigation, and they chose a lady called Rita Dando, who had her feet very much on the earth. She arrived at the aerodrome later the same day, but as we'd already left, we didn't have an opportunity to meet her, and so she was not aware that, in theory, the hauntings had ceased. She interviewed some of the staff for the training board, and then arranged to borrow the squash court key with the intention of spending part of the night in the building. She was accompanied by a lady friend, and to make certain that nobody could pull their legs, they locked themselves into the building. She was quite convinced there must be a natural explanation for the psychic happenings, but she was in for a nasty shock. the sound of the locked door flying open and slamming shut which she recorded from inside the squash court. She said that this happened three times despite the fact that the catch was down. There was no way that door could have been opened from the outside and of course she had the only key to the building with her. Apart from her friend there were no other human beings in the place. She then attempted to make a recording of the atmosphere inside the building but her tape recorder refused to function, a thing which has never happened before, and no matter what she did, she couldn't make it operate. Somewhat shaken, the two ladies returned to their hotel, only to find that the tape recorder was now working perfectly again. We have no explanation to offer for these events. All we can say is that they happened exactly as you've heard. There have been many theories put forward to account for the noises. They range from sounds of birds to practical jokers. But the most popular one is that the building itself created the sounds due to temperature changes. But experts of the Construction Industry Training Board investigated this possibility and found that at the time when the sounds occurred, the building temperatures would have stabilised. And although they tried to repeat the experiment by leaving tape recorders running inside, they only succeeded in picking up the natural ambience of the place. And this sound in no way resembled the recordings you've heard on this tape. Could it be then that we've been privileged to establish contact with the dead? The location of the squash courts could certainly add to this theory, for adjacent to the buildings were the original mess huts dating back to the 1418
1: war. Oops. I think we are done, I guess.
2: Yeah. Yeah, there we go. We're back. Due to, uh, due to the complexities of um, transcribing that, well, I think perhaps it's about tw- ten seconds. So missing from the end of it. Ooh, uh, ten in the seconds. Must be oh, burned yeah, uh, uh, yeah, no. <laughs> Only hmm. because the tape is forty years old. <laughs> I, think the, I think the dog ate it. That, so there that, we that are. Was that was That was pretty
5: intriguing, I
3: thought,
2: Steve. I thought you'd like that. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I did. yeah. You heard a spirit guide, you heard the, the dead speaking through the, the entranced medium. Uh, Who's the panting and, dog? No, that was the entranced medium. Oh, so, I thought it, there was a so, dog there that was panting so in the background. It, 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 it was the, the, the dead um, <laughs> and he was talking. And, but what you heard actually was the process of the investigation, more or less. You know, you you just uh, as, it, as it used to be conducted. Mm hmm. See, originally
1: when you, you talked about the squash courts, I was thinking of them of like a tennis court here on the outside, but they're actually a building. You're right. I was uh, it kind of threw me for a loop, and I realized what was going on.
2: So uh, I thought that would be an interesting change from the usual um, the, the usual show. And we've, we've got one um, in the can um, mm-hmm. from the same era um, for a future show another day. It just went successful.
1: Yeah, I so well, let us know if you like this. uh Rectory. Right. If you like this, then uh, pop us an email or message us and say, yeah, we want to hear the one on Borley or, uh, yeah, we want to hear more, and uh, we'll see what we can do. So uh, okay, I, I okay, enjoyed so it.
2: T- t- yeah, there are, unfortunately, there are not many surviving recordings from investigations of that era. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, most groups didn't have any technology. You know, they didn't use... Um, it was it was the fact that there was a film crew um, who were making a uh, training film, and so they had a professional sound recorder, mm-hmm. a recordist, recording engineer, um, with a big reel-to-reel for the first batch. And then, of course, uh, the BBC, when they went along, they took their own sound man along. He also had a, I think it was a Ewer, portable um, reel-to-reel recorder, and then they were, they were then copied down um, onto cassette, um with a, a typewritten um Xerox label. Uh it's quite old. In fact it's only ever been played twice, once when I first got it, um a long time ago and then uh about eight or nine years ago when I digitized it. Um because you can't play them, you know, I mean every time you play them they deteriorate ever more. So um, but we have digital copies. And of course, if people, you can know, play the podcast back. But that one is also because because it was a BBC recording, um, that one has periodically appeared on um, you know, you know, on different sort of internet forums and been much debated I, because it's a popular location with the Ghost Hunters, as you can imagine. Um, and there have been many more recent claims as to what's been happening um, at the site. So the spirit guide assured people that uh, anything that subsequently happened after he'd cleared them and sent them to the light, told them to look up and leave the earth, would be all of the mind. <laughs> so um, there we have the spirit saying that the modern generation who are, you know, who head out there and hunt for the ghosts of Birch and Newton, they're all making it up. <laughs>
1: that's that's intriguing uh you, you too can get one of those rocket suits and uh try it out i guess for
2: four hundred and forty thousand oh, dollars hang on how do we get from ghosts of rf birch and Newton back to rocket suits i don't what know what goes on in your head you,
1: you know me i can't concentrate on anything it, it goes anywhere that's why it's so hard to do a show with me
2: <laughs> well, halfway, he switches, he switches. He switches. He switches subject halfway through the same sentence.
1: Squirrel. Yeah. <laughs> oh,
2: Look, squirrel. Yep.
1: Yeah, that's pretty much. Yeah. Look, father. <laughs> what did you anyway, say? Yeah, I know. I apologize for that, but uh, yeah, that's uh, unfortunately that's how my little mind works. So, there it you go.
2: An thing, isn't it? It it would normally be just a few weeks before we we would be lining up to pass that famous roadside.
1: That's true. That's true. Unfortunately, you won't be over here this year, and I'm sad about that. But uh, well, we'll see what the future brings.
2: Well, I'm sure the future will bring positive things. I think we know this is not the 19, the 1918, 1920 uh, Spanish. Uh, pandemic shows us that we can recover from this. You know, we will recover from it. We will, yeah. we will pick up and bounce back. Just have to kill all the cats. Was it cats now carrying it?
1: <laughs> no, that's what they did in the Spanish flu. Oh no, bubonic plague. Bubonic plague. Yeah. I take that back. Yeah, the cats. Yeah, yeah. Kill the cats. Yeah, that was the ones that was controlling the plague.
2: So, yeah. it's, a, it's a matter of time, but. It'll be it'll be over. It'll be done with. We'll um, we'll be able to resume some form of normality, not the new norm. They're calling it now the new norm. I can't stand it. We'll, freaking no, we, we will go back to normal insanity and insanity as soon as we get a vaccine, or, or as soon as um, as soon as enough people die.
1: It's, it's getting really close now, according to the latest that I've heard. It could be before the beginning of the year here in the States.
2: Apparently, you're up to 6 million over there now, aren't you? Uh, yeah, cases, yep. That's what I
1: mean, cases. But the death yep. rate's going down. And we'll probably hit probably 200,000 deaths.
2: Yeah, I mean, compared to the Spanish pandemic, that's, uh, it, it's small potatoes. Yeah, me. what, 25 million, I believe with uh Well, some figures estimate up to hundred. Yeah. You know, the low-end estimates are $20, 20 million, the high-end estimates, because census data wasn't really available uh, with the accuracy that we have today. And some experts, um, because as you can imagine, there have been quite a few documentaries on television about the Spanish pandemic. I'm sure there was. Um, including, including, actually, it was an American invention. It started in Kansas, um, which you know these, these clever DNA scientists have backtracked. Uh, the DNA and, mm-hmm. uh, found out that that one, the 1980 one started off on a farm in Kansas. Uh, way not. And then spread around the world. But go. after, after a few, uh, well, two, 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 two and a half years, it burned itself out and disappeared.
1: Mm-hmm. And, uh, the bubonic plague is still around. Of course. But I mean, we,
2: we have cases like a, here in the United States. Well, Spanish flu never really goes away because it's H1N1. one uh, we just become more and you know, increasingly more and more aware of it.
1: Yeah, in immune
2: meantime, uh, You know, it's it, we will, over time, develop our own immunity to COVID. We will, be, you know, it, uh, well, it'll yeah. go away. Let's be, well, it'll, let's go be. away. It, it'll never go away. It's just just another germ that we'll have to live with, you know. Right. We'll, like the likes of uh, Joe Nickel, you know. Yeah, in, in
1: reality, it's just, you know, it just mutate and it'll be something a little different and whatever. Which, I mean, we have the flu every year, don't we? We have a different one every year. Exactly. Uh, so it's just a thing. Yeah. So it is yeah, what it, it is.
2: The big the big deal is this is a new one. We haven't seen it before, so we have no immunity for it. Or rather, they thought we didn't, but now they've discovered actually... Quite a lot of people have an immunity to COVID 19 mm. because it's remarkably similar to a cold virus um, of a particular type that a lot of people have had. Mm-hmm. And although it doesn't give full immunity, it does. What they've noticed is that people who have had um, this particular strain of common cold also have antibodies that respond to COVID 19. Right. It's been quite a new discovery. And they okay. think that's why there are so many people who are asymptomatic carriers, because they're partially, you know, they can carry it because their body is already dealing with it. Right. Okay. I mean,
1: we, we, we've had the swine flu. We've had uh, mad oh. cow disease. Don't forget mad cow disease.
2: Yeah. And uh, it's, I mean, we've also had Ebola. Uh, oh, we still have it,
1: uh, Ebola. Ebola's still yeah, around. Uh, Shows it's ugly every so often.
2: Zika, Zika virus the really nasty one, the one with about the 95% death rate. Zika virus? That that gets out occasionally. Yeah. But it is what it is, and it won't stop us from doing what we do, and it's an inconvenience, but we'll get through it. Mm.
1: Anyway.
2: I'd be much more concerned about... I was watching... Sorry, I know we've only got a couple of minutes left, but I was... And I, you know I don't do politics, particularly British like, politics. Sounds like it certainly certainly don't do American politics, but mm. God, I was watching a video of some of the bloopers and clangers Biden made. Now I thought Trump was um I always thought Trump was a, a bit incompetent, but bloody hell, Biden. <laughs> <laughs> Dear God. <laughs> you you were doomed. It's the devil in the deep blue sea for you, Lot. Yeah, that's the way it goes. Anyways, but that's
1: life. I mean, as long as we keep sending the same people back into Congress and the, and the Senate, then, you know, we get what we deserve, quite frankly. We,
2: <laughs> well, just,
1: you know, we just had well, the elections here in Massachusetts, the primary, and it's the same old, same old, all the same old people. Uh so, uh, there remind, you go. Remind me
2: why you why you fought the British in 1776 again.
1: I don't know. I think we're better up on our monarchy.
2: Isn't it something to do with representation? <laughs> yeah. It was never, <laughs> supposed to
1: be, never supposed to be a career. It's only supposed to be a part-time <laughs> job. <laughs> but whatever. Yeah,
2: but po- politics is a, is the only people that do politics are career politicians. Exactly. We all know that. Uh,
1: that was never and meant you know to be what? that way. Your it never was meant to be
2: that way. No, But your constitution, when it was written, actually, has loads of protections that are supposed to stop what's happening happening.
1: Well, we did it to the president, and that was it. <laughs> you know, when FDR rolled up so many terms, they said, hey, this is not a good idea. This is almost like a monarchy. We've got to stop this. So they put term limitation. But that's as far as it got. Never reached the Senate. Never reached the Senate or the, I mean, the House. So there you go. We're suffering because of it. Uh, you know what? I really believe in term limitations. Some of these guys, uh, you've got no to move ideas. On. New ideas, new, new generations.
2: Definitely. 100% you know? with you on that one, because that's the problem. When people become career politicians, it is their career. Yeah. Um, and what, what we want is fresh blood every few years. So I think any politician should only serve two terms, Matt.
1: Yeah, totally agree with you there. And Anyways. I think that sort out the corruption as well. So we kind of uh, put a political message in there. Yeah. Anyways, we hope you enjoyed the show. If you like the one, uh, if you like what we played today, let us know what you think about it. Uh, you can email us at anyghostproject.com. the letter N, the letter, no, project at comcast.net, the letter N, the letter E, ghostproject at comcast.net, or you can go on to our uh, Facebook page, which is uh, Ghost Chronicles International, and messages there. So we got to go. Uh, looks like seven seconds. And anyway, uh, Steve, thanks for bringing that on. And I, I really enjoyed I really it. I did enjoy it. Oh, wait a minute. That's only. What? Uh, uh, two. Wait hey, a
2: minute. Now me. I'm totally confused. <laughs> <laughs> Hang on. We've just is been it? told that we've got two minutes, but then the pizza bell rang.
1: All right. Is it tunes or is it? Oh, we have no. to. <laughs> we got two-tunes. Two-tunes. Anyways, yeah. Oh, I do want to mention something. Uh, now in this crazy world, one thing that has happened, which is kind of cool and a lot of people like it, in fact, are these online workshops. And I've been doing my monthly paranormal study group every uh, third Tuesday of the month, and you can do it anywhere in the world. And uh, all you have to do is go to circlesofwisdom.com to sign up. And, uh, yeah, you can join us. Uh, this this month is, uh, oh, I'll be with uh, Maureen Wood. Uh, and we will be doing Fifty Shades of Dowsing. So there you go. Whatever that is.
2: Shades and dousing. Yeah,
1: that was her idea. Spicing it up. What are
2: you up. going to be doing? Tying each other up? And... Who knows? You'll have to tune mm-hmm. in to find out. <laughs> mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. God bless us. But you're, but you're right. I mean, this online stuff, because I mean, I've been doing webinars and different stuff. Do you know, it's good, but it's not as good as face-to-face. No, I agree. I'm totally. sorry, it isn't. Because you don't get that interaction, which you know when you're dealing with an audience, I think really works better, because, oh yes, yeah. you, you know when you, when you when you're making a presentation online, you're just reading a script, but when you're making a presentation face to face, you know you, you can change it, you can work with the audience, and I think you know you can interact with them better. So I'm looking forward to face to face again.
1: There you go. Anyways, now, uh, now it's really ending. Today's show is brought to you by Circles of Wisdom 386 Mermark Street in Methuen, Massachusetts, and the Gallant Messier Family Law Group High Street in North Andover, Massachusetts. And we want to say thank you for joining us tonight and good night and God bless
2: and stay safe. Thanks, Roy. Good night God bless.
0: To in
2: its
1: quest Long to provide an open forum for discussion of
0: con- and things that go bump in the night. Deliver us, good Lord.